Michelangelo was a master sculptor, artist, painter, even an architect. To this day, his masterpieces still adorn the streets and basilicas of the city of Rome. But there is in Florence, Italy, a museum that contains many of Michelangelo's unfinished works. You see, the great artist was notorious for not always finishing what he started. In contrast, our master, Jesus Christ, is the great finisher. Jesus left nothing undone that he had come into the world to do. He completed his mission. And his words on the cross in John 19 verse 30 still echo through the ages. It is finished. And you know, Jesus' words give us hope today. As we're told in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Isn't that good news? What Jesus has started in us, he is faithful to complete. Judas knew that the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives was a favorite hangout for Jesus and his disciples. And that's where he leads the posse that's bent on arresting Jesus, the soldiers and the temple guards. They're armed with torches and spears and swords. They have come to arrest the Son of God. Notice verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. This is a vital insight to know up front. None of the events that we're going to study tonight, none of what's going to go on later that night, caught Jesus by surprise. He knew what was going to happen. He was in full command of the situation from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the Roman cross. When these arresting officers say that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, verse 6 tells us, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Remember, the phrase, I am, was the name that God gave to Moses from the burning bush. The Hebrews understood uh, the name, I am, as a claim to deity. And so when Jesus spoke it, the force, the very force of his words bowled them over. His words had the effect of a stun gun. His confession knocked the soldiers on their backsides. Obviously, Jesus had power. His very words carried a tremendous force. Peter should have known that if Jesus had wanted to defend himself, he could have done so. All he had to do was speak a word. Instead, Peter takes it upon himself to start swinging a sword. And in verse 10, we're told, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, I believe that, that that's not what Peter intended. <laughs> See, I believe Peter was going for his, for the middle. Of, he's going to part him right down the middle. He was going to split this guy in two. The guy saw what was coming. At the last minute, he jerked away, and Peter clipped off his right ear. It's ironic. Peter's ears remained intact on his head, <laughs> but apparently he didn't use them. <laughs> In the upper room, Jesus had taken a bowl and a towel and he had stooped to serve. He had taught his disciples that they would change the world through washing feet and ministering to others and extending love. But here Peter thinks that he can do a better job with the sword. Jesus wanted to save this man, Malchus. Peter wanted to kill him. Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus touched his ear and healed him. 
And as he reattaches Malchus's ear, Jesus explains to Peter how detached his actions were from the will of God. Verse 11 says, Then Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup with which my father has given me, meaning his death? He was born to die, and that's what he intended to do. Ironically, Jesus' last miracle was to heal a wound inflicted by one of his own disciples. And sadly, over the history of the church, Jesus has had to repeat that miracle many, many times. How often we make the mistake of taking up the sword to strike rather than the bowl and the towel to serve. Jesus calls his followers to be servants, to love those who even don't love them. Guys, you are never more like Jesus than when you love your enemies. Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested by these temple cops. Now he's rushed to trial. First he's taken to Annas. The Romans had stripped the high priest from Annas in 15 AD and had given it to his son-in-law Caiaphas. But Annas was still, being the former high priest, was still a very powerful person. Jesus has actually tried six times this night. He's tried before Annas, then before his son-in-law Caiaphas, then before the Sanhedrin, the Hebrew Supreme Court, then before Pilate, then before Herod, and then again before Pilate. Six times. Most Jews would patronize the high priest with accolades and flatteries. But Jesus kisses up to nobody. Jesus says if Annas had truly been interested in his teachings, where had he been the last three years? Jesus hasn't been teaching under a rock. He's been out in the public. He's been in the synagogue. He's been teaching in the temple. If Annas had truly been interested, he could have come. He could have listened. One of the temple guards didn't like the way Jesus was talking to the priest, his bluntness. And so he pops Jesus in the mouth with the palm of his hand. And the physical torture of Jesus begins. While Jesus endures this bogus trial, Peter is outside denying his Lord. Here is a sign that Peter is in deep trouble. Verse 18 says that he stood warming himself by the enemy's fire. You remember Luke also tells us, gives us a clue that he was in trouble. He followed Jesus at a distance. That's a problem. When you let a little distance get between you and Jesus. But now John adds he's warming himself by the enemy's campfire. Isn't that how it begins really? You let a little distance get between you and Jesus. And then suddenly, because of the hollowness and the coldness that results, you begin to turn to worldly, to sinful, to compromising sources of warmth and enjoyment. Before long, you have denied the Lord. You sacrifice your loyalty for the warmth of the world. Don't let it happen to you. It can. It happened to Peter. First, Peter denies Jesus before servant girl. Then before a crowd outside the house of the high priest. And then look who walks up. Chapter 18, verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? It's Malchus' cousin coming back to take revenge. And Peter panics, man. His faith is overwhelmed by his fears. And in verse 27, we're told, Peter then denied again, And immediately, a rooster crowed. 
Hey, fear caused Peter to forsake what he believed. Fear. He yielded to the fear factor. You see, it'll take an encounter with the risen Christ. It'll take the power of Pentecost to straighten back out Peter's wobbly knees. Perhaps you too have denied Jesus. Maybe even this week, you found yourself following at a distance. Maybe you have warmed yourself by the enemy's fires. If so, there's still hope. While you're down, get on your knees and ask Jesus for His supernatural strength. He is faithful. He will give it to you. He finishes what He starts in our lives. From Caiaphas, Jesus is taken to the Roman governor Pilate. Understand the Jews hated the Romans. Notice in verse 28, they won't even go under a Roman roof. But they need Pilate's cooperation. In the year 19 AD, Rome stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. An execution now needed Pilate's authorization. Pilate asked Jesus in verse 33, he says, Are you king of the Jews? You see, this was the charge that the Jews had trumped up, hoping to gain for Jesus a death sentence. For a person to make the claim to be king of the Jews, obviously would have been committing treason against the Roman king, Caesar. And so the Jews were hoping that because of that claim, Pilate would be forced to have Jesus crucified. Jesus doesn't deny being king, but he says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. His was a spiritual kingdom. Jesus was not a king who had come to fight. Jesus had come to spread truth. But it's interesting, when Jesus mentions that word truth, Pilate, who was a Roman steeped in relativism and humanism, he grows cynical. And he says, what is truth? Is there any such thing? Little did this Roman governor know that he was speaking with the truth. Pilate goes back to the Jews and he tells them, hey, I find no fault in him at all. He brings up a custom. On Passover, the Passover, the governor can release a prisoner. And Pilate hopes that they'll want Jesus. Instead, though, they ask for a robber by the name of Barabbas. You know, when you place Pilate under a magnifying glass, his problem really gets a little clearer. You see, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew it all along. But for fear of the Jews, he refuses to do the right thing and free Jesus. In essence, the truth he did know. Pilate lacked the guts to obey. He lacked the courage to follow through. And you see, that's the humanist problem today. That's the problem with the person who, oh, there is no such thing as truth. It's not that truth doesn't exist. We all know it does. But living truth requires a whole lot more courage than denying it. It's hard to read John chapter 19 without a tear or two coming to your eyes. Verse 1 says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Listen to the historian, the medical doctor, William Edwards, describe the Roman scourging. He says, The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable length in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied on an upright post. 
The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged by two soldiers called lictors. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Boy, what an end result. Quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. This is what they did to our Lord. Next, they took that crown of thorns and they twisted it down over his brow. A purple robe they laid now over his bleeding back. They mocked Jesus with their words. They slapped him with their hands. Pilate is determined to free himself from the guilt of sentencing an innocent man. He brings out a mocked and a mutilated Jesus, hoping that the Jews will see this miserable sight and have pity, have mercy. Pilate introduces him. Behold the man. Today, those words are often used as a challenge to the skeptic to examine the claims of Christ, to look at Jesus, his character, his reliability, his miracles, to examine all of the the different details about his life. Behold this man, and you'll come to the conclusion that, yes, he is the Messiah. Originally, though, those words were used by Pilate to try to conjure up pity so that the Jews would let him go. Surely anyone with a shred of decency would see Jesus at that moment and shout, Enough! Enough! Instead, the chief priests, they shout, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate again tries to pass the buck. He says, You take Him and crucify Him, for I find no fault in Him. How ironic. The blood they wanted spilled was the blood that was meant to save. When the Jews say he deserves to die because he claims to be the Son of God, Pilate becomes even more leery of executing Jesus. He claims what? To be the Son of God? He brings Jesus back in for further interrogation. And in verse 9 he says, where are you from? Jesus remains silent and of course this angers Pilate. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? (laughs) Pilate's assuming that it was he who was deciding Jesus' fate. But Jesus informs him, says, hey, you've got another thing coming. In verse 11, he says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. He sets it straight. Pilate was just a pawn in God's master plan. We're told in verse 13, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, it says that his wife, Claudia, had even had a dream warning Pilate to leave Jesus alone. And he tries his best to avoid the issue here. You remember Matthew tells us that he comes out and he washes his hands out in front of the people, trying to absolve himself of any responsibility for issuing the edict for his execution. The problem, though, is that Jesus is not an issue that anyone can avoid. You have to take a stand at some point in your life. You have to decide you're for him or you're against him. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. He's not an issue you can avoid. Either you're for him or you're against him. Pilate had ample opportunity to do the right thing. But when the Jews threaten him in verse 12, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. The politician in Pilate comes out 
And he realizes the problems that they could cause him, and he gives in. Jesus is taken to a place called the pavement, or in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was outside the fortress of Antonio on the northern tip of the temple. And there Jesus was turned over to the Jews to be executed. They led him outside the city gates to a place just north of Jerusalem, an outcropping of rock that actually has the form of a skull. You can go to Jerusalem, you can see it uh, from the wall. The Greek word for this place is Calvary, which comes from the word cranium or skull. In the Hebrew, the word is Golgotha. Jesus' final journey is from Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha to the garden tomb, and then 40 days later, or 43 days later, on to glory. The Romans crucified Jesus between two thieves. Customarily, the criminal guilty of the greater crimes occupied the middle. And since Jesus died for the sin of the world, I suppose the middle seemed appropriate. A placard hung over Jesus' head, which read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, And it was written, we're told, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so all the world could read it. In verse 25, Jesus takes care of a little unfinished business. He turns over the care of his mother Mary to John, the disciple whom he loved. We're told in verse 27, and from that hour, that disciple took her home, took her into his own home. Perhaps Mary, more than anyone else, had made the greatest sacrifices to follow Jesus. You remember when Jesus was just a baby. She had met an old man in the temple, a man named Simeon. And Simeon had told her, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And I'm sure for years she wondered what he meant by that. Now she is feeling and understanding the sting of these words as she looks up and sees her son hanging on the cross. Earlier in his ordeal... Jesus had rejected a pain-numbing narcotic usually given to crucified victims. But now he wants to moisten his lips to utter his final words. He cries out, I thirst. And they give him some of the cheap wine that the soldiers were drinking. In verse 30, Jesus says, It is finished. Or in the Greek, Te telestai. In classical Greek, that was a word used for numerous reasons. It was used of the servant who had just completed an assignment. That certainly was true of Jesus. It was used of the priest who had examined the sacrifice and declared it sinless and faultless. That too was true of Jesus. And it was used of the accountant who had now marked the bill paid in full. Te telestai. It is finished. All three uses were true of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus wrapped up loose ends that had been dangling since the beginning of time. On the cross, listen, on the cross, our salvation became a done deal. It is finished. There was an old evangelist, a fellow named Alexander Wooten, who was once asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Wooten looked at the old man and he said, Son, I'm sorry, you're too late. Too late? What do you mean too late? The guy... He was desperate. He was frantic. He pleaded, please, what must I do to be saved? And that's when Wooten answered him, you're too late, son, to do anything. The work has already been done. All you have to do is believe. When Jesus returned to heaven, 
He sat down on the right hand of the Father. He sat down. Why? Because his work was finished. Because there was nothing left for him to do. And he's sitting there today. And we need to sit. We need to stop our frantic works. We need to stop our efforts to try to please God. We need to rest in the fact that Jesus has made us pleasing. He's made us acceptable. He's forgiven us of our sins. We're as accepted before God right now in Christ Jesus as we will ever be. Yes, we want to make God happy. Yes, we want to please Him in that sense. But we need to understand that we can't add to the status, to the relationship and favor we've gained before God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our rallying cry needs to be, Te telestai. It is finished. Verse 30 says of Jesus, And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The word bowed means to recline your head as if it were laying in a pillow. Isn't that neat? Jesus had finished his work, and now it's as if he's simply laying his head into his father's lap. Notice verse 31. We're told the Jews were anxious to get the bodies off the cross because it was sundown, because it was about to start the Sabbath. But then it says, but that Sabbath was a high day. In other words, it was not a normal Sabbath, but it was a special Sabbath. And this has led some folks, including myself, to believe that Jesus was not crucified on Friday, but he was actually crucified on Thursday. Yes, the Sabbath uh, would have been Saturday, and, and if, it, if he meant a regular Sabbath, he, he would have been Friday he was crucified, but it says it was not a regular Sabbath, it was a high Sabbath, which could have then been Friday, and that means Jesus was crucified on Thursday. The reason I believe that, Matthew chapter 12, verses 40, tell us, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, he's implying there three days, three nights, 24-hour intervals. And if Jesus was crucified on Friday, man, I don't care how you slice it, there's no way you can have him in the grave for three days and three nights. I think if we were to be exact, we would celebrate Good Thursday, not Good Friday. Doctors tell us that human blood breaks down into blood and water only when the heart ruptures. And it's interesting, when the soldiers thrust the spear into Jesus' side, we're told in verse 34, immediately blood and water came out. Literally, medically, Jesus died of a broken heart. And I guess you could say the same thing happened spiritually as well. In verses 35 through 37, John points out that many of the details surrounding his time on the cross were fulfillments of Scripture. John says that he recorded his account that you might believe. This was his intent behind his whole gospel, that you might trust in the Savior yourself. Undercover disciples suddenly come out of the closet. They present themselves to give Jesus a decent burial. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they bring spices and they bury Jesus in Joseph's unused tomb. Legend has it that when Joseph went home that night, his wife reprimanded him for giving away, free of charge, a perfectly good tomb. Oy vey, what were you thinking? And Joseph turned to her and said, Honey, lighten up. He only needs it for the weekend. (laughs) 
Did you know that the lily is the flower associated with Easter? And the reason the lily is associated with Easter, it's because it's shaped like a trumpet. In Bible times, trumpets were used to announce special events, strategic events. And in chapters 21 and 22, John blows the trumpet of Easter. And he sounds the good news, Jesus Christ is risen indeed. John 20 tells us that Mary Magdalene was first to find the tomb empty. She immediately ran to tell Peter and John. They too raced to the tomb. And they found Jesus' linen grave clothes and the facial handkerchief folded and lying by itself. Obviously, if he'd been if the body had been stolen away, they wouldn't have taken the time to fold up the, the garments. The fact that they were folded meant that something special had happened. It reminds me of the mom who took her children over to John chapter 20 and told them, Look, even after his resurrection, the first thing Jesus did was fold his clothes. <laughs> In verse 11, Mary returns for another look. She's outside the tomb weeping when she sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid. You know, it's interesting to me that Mary is so caught up in what's happened to Jesus that even the presence of two angels don't get her attention. You know, usually in the Bible, when angels appear, it's a big deal. People hit the deck before an angel. But you see, even an angel is not a big deal when your heart desires Jesus. Hey, when you, when you want Jesus, even angels won't do. They're no substitute for our Lord, our living Lord. Angels testify of Jesus. They never take his place. I think for the last few years, our society's been in sort of an angel craze. We've got TV programs about angels and all kinds of books come out about angels and movies. You know, angels are in. But even the angels would tell us, don't focus on us. Focus on Jesus Christ. On her way from the tomb, Mary bumps into a man. She thinks he's the gardener. And she wonders what he's done with the corpse of Jesus. Obviously, her faith had been consumed by the flames of crucifixion. She has no idea at this point that Jesus is alive. But when the gardener speaks her name, immediately she recognizes that he's Jesus. But it's interesting that she didn't recognize Jesus by his appearance. Perhaps... Her eyes had been supernaturally blinded, as were the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Or it's possible that she didn't recognize Jesus because maybe his back was turned or his face was hidden. It's even possible, though, that she didn't recognize Jesus because of the disfigurement that he had suffered on the cross. And this is what I believe. Isaiah 53 verse 14 had predicted that the Messiah's face would be so marred that it would no longer resemble that of a man. Imagine the scars on Jesus' face. He had been beaten and bloodied. They had plucked out his beard. They had driven thorns into his brow. Jesus' face probably looked like that of a person who'd gone through the windshield of a car in an accident. Let me surprise you. I believe that the face of Jesus still to this day bears those same scars. When John later sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 in the future yet, he says, And I looked and beheld in the midst of the throne 
stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus apparently still bears the scars of crucifixion. He still appears as a lamb who had been slain. It may be a shocker for you and me when we first look into the face of Jesus Christ. Instantly, we'll be reminded of all that it cost him for us to be saved. We'll be sad. (laughs) But then as we continue to look, we'll become glad. Because one look at those scars will erase any doubt that you and I have that he really does love us. We'll see those scars. And we'll be assured of his love forever. What's the only man-made thing in heaven? It's the scars that Jesus bears in his body. Mary didn't recognize Jesus until he spoke her name. You know, when Mary spoke, when Mary's parents spoke her name to scold her, didn't do much for her. When the men in her life spoke her name to try to manipulate her, it didn't do much for her. When her neighbors spoke her name so they could judge her, she had tuned those words out. But when Jesus said Mary, Oh, it warmed her heart. It got her attention. It spoke of his love. There was such compassion. There was such tenderness in his voice. When Jesus spoke her name, she knew that he loved her. I want you to listen real closely tonight. Because Jesus might just be speaking your name. He might just be wanting to say to you just how much he loves you. Just how much he cares for you. Apparently, Mary was glad to see Jesus. So glad that she dropped to her knees and she grabbed hold of his legs and she wouldn't let him go. This time, she would never let her master leave her side. But Jesus tells her in chapter 20, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, Jesus is telling her that his physical presence isn't permanent. This is not a permanent relationship, Mary. My body is going to return to my Father. Our relationship won't end, but it will change. And Mary will have to learn to relate to Jesus in another way. Through His Spirit. In essence, Jesus is saying to Mary, rather than tighten your grip, what you're going to need from now on is to strengthen your faith. After His reunion with Mary, Jesus pops in on His disciples. We're told in verse 19 that they were meeting behind shut doors. And the Greek word there, translated shut, means locked and bolted. These disciples were afraid. They were afraid they were next on the high priest's hit list. There's no mention that Jesus knocked on the door. Suddenly he just appears in the room. Apparently walls and bolted doors were no barriers for the risen Christ. You see, when Jesus came out of the tomb, understand, it was the very same body that had died on the cross. But at the resurrection, that body was given new characteristics. It was given new properties. It enjoyed a new molecular structure that enabled it to do amazing things, to dematerialize, to pass through walls, to travel through time. It was able to travel great distances even in a few seconds. Suddenly, Jesus' body had supernatural capacities. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus was still human. You see, his post-resurrection body was the same body that Mary had laid in the manger, but it had changed, it had been transformed. 
Jesus even eats fish with his disciples in chapter 21. But his body now is different. As Paul said, corruption has put on incorruption. Mortality has put on immortality. You know, our bodies too will one day be changed. Currently, our our bodies are fit for earth. But hey, we have a home in heaven. And one day at the rapture of the church, our bodies are going to be transformed. They're going to be made fit for our heavenly home. We're going to be have, we're going to end up with heavenly bodies. And we're going to live forever in those bodies with Jesus Christ. When we die, our spirits go to be with Jesus. But at the rapture, our bodies are going to be resurrected, reunited with our spirits. And we're going to have bodies that are going to be fit for heaven, fit for our eternal home. What a wonderful thought that's going to be. The disciples who were hidden behind shut doors, they were afraid of the Romans. But you know, I think too, they were a little afraid of Jesus too. (laughs) Yes, if he had risen from the dead, as Mary said, how was he going to react to them? (laughs) Is he coming back to get us? After all, we've let him down. We had forsaken him. We had rejected him and denied him at his greatest hour of need. They weren't quite sure of of how Jesus would approach them. How comforting, though, it was. Now, when Jesus first appears to them, the very first words that roll off his lips, Peace be with you. (laughs) I'm sure those four words were the most beautiful words the disciples had ever heard. He's saying, all is forgiven. Let's start over. I still love you. Jesus showed them the scars in his hands and in his feet. They believe in the risen Christ. And as a result, we're told he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And to this day, anyone who believes in the risen Lord instantly receives the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes to indwell in the believing heart. Apparently, though, Thomas had been out running errands when Jesus appeared. And when he returned, he was adamant. He refused to believe until he himself saw those scars with his own eyes. We're told eight days later, Jesus reappeared, and this time Thomas was present. And in verse 27, Jesus tells Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas utters his marvelous confession in the next verse, My Lord And my God. But Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, the world today has an adage, seeing is believing. But Jesus says just the opposite. He says believing is seeing. The resurrection appearances of Jesus lasted just seven weeks before he ascended into heaven. And for those that came thereafter, for us, we have to believe to see. It never happens vice versa. In chapter 20, verse 31, John reminds us why he's written down his gospel. He reminds us again. You know, here's what he's trying to say. Don't read my book and miss my point. John says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. In John 21, Jesus joins a fishing party. In verse 3 we're told, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you also. One commentary I read indicates that Peter's words 
are in the progressive tense, which implies a continual activity. In other words, he's not just suggesting here a recreational fishing trip. He figures it's time to get back to business. Let's go back to the family's business. It's, you know, we left fishing. Let's go back to fishing. It's time to get back to work. And six disciples join him. I'm sure Peter's actions here are born out of a sense of his own failure. You know, those heady days with Jesus, man, they're over now. The walking on water, the living by faith, the keys to the kingdom, the idea that we could be used by God to build up the kingdom. All those ideas, all those hopes had come crashing down in the wake of his denial of Jesus. Yes, the Lord had graciously forgiven him, but he's certain that now he's disqualified from ministry. We're told in verse 3, they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. I'm sure a depressed and defeated Peter had thought, well, I'm obviously a lousy disciple, but at least I can catch a few fish. (laughs) But then he goes out and he catches nothing. Guys, if God has called you to serve him in a certain capacity, you'll never be happy, you'll never be successful doing anything else. Suddenly, the frustrated fisherman They hear a voice from the shore. Verse 5 says, Children, have you any food? Here's the question every fisherman gets from time to time. Hey, you caught anything? And they shouted back, No. The voice shouts back something, though, that they had heard one time in the past. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. It's interesting, that's exactly what Jesus had told them back in Luke chapter 5 when he first called Peter to follow him. And Jesus is repeating here the calling of Peter. He's recalling him to the ministry that God has for him. And when the nets come up full, it's John who realizes, hey, this has happened before. It's him. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. Verse 7 is typical Peter. He's so excited. It's the Lord that he puts his clothes back on, that he's taken off to fish. And then what does he do? He puts his clothes back on to jump into the lake. That's impulsive Peter for you right there. Understand, throughout the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, he was always popping in on the disciples. And you know, he does the same to us today. When you least expect it. Jesus will suddenly come and reveal himself in your life, in your situation. He'll intervene and he'll manifest himself in wonderful ways. That's why you should keep your eyes open. Don't be slow to recognize his divine visits. Don't be slow to say, hey, it's the Lord. When the seven seven disciples reach shore, they find that Jesus has breakfast for them. After they eat, Jesus wants to talk to Peter. He's going to redirect here Peter's life. You remember, Peter had denied his Lord three times. Now three times, Jesus questions his love. Simon, do you love me more than these? The question, though, for us is what did Jesus mean by more than these? These what? These fish? Maybe. Simon Peter, do you you want to return to a life on the lake? To a fishing business? Or do you want to continue to follow me? Maybe he means these other men. 
You know, Peter had once boasted, though, Lord, though they all deny you, though they all forsake you, ah, Lord, I will remain faithful. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Now three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. And each time Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But here's what you pick up from the, here's where what you pick up from the original language is very important. We miss it actually in English. The first two times, that Jesus asks about Peter's love, he uses a Greek word, agape. Agape love is God's love. It is a sacrificial, it is an unselfish love. And Peter basically, Jesus basically says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter does not return the word agape. Rather, he uses the word phileo, which is a lesser love, a brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. That's what phileo is. It's a brotherly love. Finally, the last time, Jesus comes down to Peter's level. He says, okay, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. It's as if he's saying, that's okay, Peter. It's better to be humble. It's better to be a little uncertain of yourself than to be proud and haughty and think that you've got it all together. You see, before Peter learned his lesson, he was quicker to doubt Jesus than he was to doubt himself. But never again. Peter now doubts himself. But he loves and he trusts Jesus. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. (laughs) I'm going to love you the best I can, but Lord, I'm trusting in you, not me. Each time Peter says that he loves Jesus, the Lord tells him to prove it by tending and feeding his sheep. Peter can fish for fortune or he can care for the flock of God. In a delicate and yet in a profound way, Peter is being reinstated to the ministry. Peter is being challenged to express his love for Jesus by serving the church And this is the heart of all true Christian ministry. You show your love for Jesus by loving and feeding and tending His people. If you love Jesus, you will love His family. In verse 18, Peter is given a glimpse of his future. Jesus predicts how he will die. He says, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. The language was an idiom for crucifixion. And it's true. In 65 A.D., the historians tell us that Peter was crucified on a Roman cross by the Emperor Nero. But Peter insisted that he was not worthy to be crucified as Jesus had been. Rather, he wanted to be crucified upside down. And so Peter was crucified on an upside down cross. In the upper room, Peter had boasted that he would lay down his life for Jesus. He had failed. But he was given another opportunity, and this time he proved faithful. Peter had the tendency to compare himself with his peers. Maybe you have that same tendency. No sooner, though, than does Jesus speak of his plight, that Peter turns and he says, well, what about John? Verse 21, but Lord, what about this man? And Jesus answers him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Guys, Jesus has a particular plan for each of us. 
And Jesus' plan for you isn't his plan for me. His plan for me isn't his plan for you. We all have a unique and special plan in God's purposes. Comparing yourself and your situation to another believer will only cause confusion. When I get my eyes on you, the guy who gets in trouble is me. (laughs) Here's a great rule. Keep your eyes on Jesus and your nose out of other believers' business. If God wants you to be concerned about someone or something, He'll lay that person on your heart. Otherwise, what is that to you? You follow Jesus. John closes with a provocative point. It stretches our imagination. Verse 25, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. The Gospels are an incredible account of the miracles and the teaching and the love in action of our Lord Jesus Christ. But guys, they're only a fraction of the story. John says, I just scratched the surface. Like a Paul Harvey editorial, we'll learn the rest of the story when we get to heaven. Father, we thank you for the Gospels. Lord, as we leave the works of Jesus while he was here on earth and move now on to the book of Acts. Lord, I know that we're going to learn that his works have not stopped. He is now working in and through his church. And the book of Acts is a book with no ending. It continues today. You're still wanting to do your work in the world today. And you want to use us. You want to use this church. And so, Lord, as we leave the Gospels and move on to the book of Acts, help us to to move on with a heart of anticipation, with a spirit of expectation. Lord, I, I pray that over these next few weeks, that as we read of these things in the book of Acts, you'll actually... You'll actually work the same kinds of things in our church. That you'll do miracles. That you'll bring people to Jesus. That we'll see a massive move of your spirit. Lord, we want to be open to you. And to the work you want to do in us and in this church. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your blessing on our lives. We thank you that the work has been done. Lord, help us to rest. And to allow you to do your work through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.